From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, the Trump years are not the only time American democracy has been threatened. The World War I years, when Democrat Woodrow Wilson was president, were another. That's what Adam Hochschild argues. His new book is American Midnight, The Great War, A Violent Peace, and Democracy's Forgotten Crisis. We'll talk about it later in the show. But first, what will Republicans do if they win control of the House in the midterms? Now they've said something about that officially. Chris Lehman will comment in a minute. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. The polls and the pundits say Republicans are likely to win control of the House in the midterms. What are their plans if they do return to power there in January? For comment, we turn to Chris Lehman. Of course, he's D.C. Bureau Chief for The Nation. We reached him today in our nation's capital. Chris, welcome back. Thank you, John. It's always a pleasure to be here. Well, the House Republicans announced their agenda recently with great fanfare. They didn't just issue a press release. They held a big media event with House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, who will replace Nancy Pelosi as speaker if they win control. They had 20 members of Congress in attendance, including Marjorie Taylor Greene. And they did it not in Washington, D.C., but in Monongahela, Pennsylvania, an old working class town outside of Pittsburgh, in front of a crowd that cheered as they unveiled a document titled A Commitment to America. That sounds sort of like a contract with America. Remind us what that was. Yes. In fact, Newt Gingrich reportedly consulted on um, this latest edition. The contract with America was... It's subject to some debate among historians, whether it really launched the Republican Revolution of 1994 or whether it was more of a trailing indicator. But in any event, it was significant um, chiefly uh, for nationalizing uh, a congressional election and, and making every you know House race, every Senate race, essentially a referendum on the then first Clinton administration. And uh it's an interesting contrast. The 1994 um, contract with America was a very different document in many ways. It was, a, first of all, a laundry list of you know somewhat tangible reforms, things like a mandated a constitutional amendment to balance the budget, term limits in Washington, um, sort of you know what were long-standing um, conservative good government proposals. Uh, but there was no kind of culture war red meat in it. And that was very deliberate because the strategy behind the 94 contract with America was to try to woo Perot voters um, who were, you know, obsessed with government spending and fiscal responsibility, but were very, let's just say, agnostic, perhaps even conscientious objectors in the culture wars. So Gingrich actually fought to keep, say, abortion language out of that document. 
the current Republican commitment to America starts with their economic agenda. Fight inflation, lower the cost of living, increase take-home pay, create good-paying jobs, make America energy independent, reduce gas prices, strengthen the supply chain. That sounds great. How do they propose to do the, all this? Largely, I think, by waving their hands. Uh, uh, I mean, they will, of course, try to institute another round of tax cuts. There's already talk of bringing back the tax, uh, the Trump tax cuts should um, the Republicans gain control of Congress. That's the one trick the Republican Party does and knows how to do. They've been doing it since the first Reagan administration in 1980. Everything else on that list, with, I guess, the ex- exception of uh, increased energy exploration, which means fracking and, and a lot of dirty oil pipeline projects and whatnot. Opening public lands to exploitation. Right. Yeah, that they also know how to do and, and have a track record on. But everything else, you know, is not um, <laughs> there. There are no, no deliverables, uh, to use corporate jargon, in that laundry list. And I think that's quite deliberate. Um, the Republicans have not really governed in Congress, you know, arguably since the Gingrich era, if then. Basically, all they did during the Trump administration was pass something like, going back to the Obama years too, 40-odd resolutions to repeal Obamacare, which they never actually managed to do. Are they still talking about repealing Obamacare in this document? They are targeting healthcare reforms that I think are not especially politically wise. Uh, They want to repeal provisions in the Inflation Reduction Act that allow negotiation of drug prices under Medicare, which is obviously a big giveaway to the pharmaceutical industry. But, you know, the typical conservative voter is boomer age and is likely a Medicare recipient and would appreciate um, lower Medicare costs. So it's a baffling document. I mean, that's a perfect case in point where, you know, they're saying they're going to do everything to increase the standard of living. But if you look at the actual impact of the policy, it's the reverse. So you say at thenation.com that the heart of this Republican, in quotes, commitment to America is not the standard promise to cut spending and, and taxes, as you say, something they've been talking about for, you know, 100 years. What is the heart? the heart is really, um, I think, to (laughs) sort of produce free-floating culture war talking points. And they're they're strangely worded, kind of gnomic call-outs to things like the CRT, moral panic in schools, and- um, Critical race theory. Critical race theory, yes. They were forced to acknowledge- the Dobbs decision, uh, which is, you know, I think going to be something of an albatross for them in the election. Um, but they, you know, cast it in, in terms of protecting the rights of the unborn. So do they promise a national law banning abortion in all 50 states? No, that's Lindsey Graham's pet proposal on the Hill. No, I, I think they, again, it was just an abstract hand-waving thing. You know, we want to protect the rights of the unborn. We would prefer it if you didn't think too much about the Dobbs decision. (laughs) (laughs) There is a specific pledge to ensure that only women can compete in women's sports. What's what's this about? Yeah, that's the trans panic, which is the next, I guess, a couple of iterations now. The critical race theory panic took off in the last year of the Trump administration. 
then there was the don't say gay panic um, to banish literature to tolerant of uh, same sex uh, lifestyles from school. And now, um, of course, it's the trans panic, uh, this idea that uh, the sacrosanct character of women's sports is being violated by male to female athletic competitors. Doesn't seem like a huge problem in America compared it, to inflation or... It doesn't. And that's that's what's interesting. This is where you get the specifics, right? <laughs> yeah, they even uh, have this insane uh, quote from this talking point on the right that uh, the Biden administration has labeled concerned parents domestic terrorists. Um, mm, and that, I, mi- I missed that. Yeah, that is something that in a press conference, uh, Joe Biden just was sort of riffing a little bit and saying when the critical race theory panic was sort of at its crest and there were quasi-violent disruptions of school board meetings by protesters from the right, Biden sort of said, well, you know, there there could be future scenarios in which the FBI might have to consider these incidents as domestic terrorism. <laughs> and so that, of course, has now got gotten into uh, the Commitment to America doc- document. It's a total lie. It's a total fabrication um, that Joe Biden calls American parents domestic terrorists. It's of a piece with the other big right-wing talking point from the Inflation Reduction Act concerning the addition of 10,000 more IRS investigators. And that translates into the dystopian vision of the right as um, you know this rolling um, Gestapo core of IRS agents who are going to beat down the, the doors of small businesses. In point of fact, the IRS has long been understaffed and the new analysts will overwhelmingly be detailed with auditing people like Donald Trump <laughs> and, and incredibly filthy rich Americans. So, The big picture here is that Republicans in the House have one big advantage, gerrymandered districts. They don't need to win a majority of the votes in the midterm to win a majority of the seats in the House. And that is not as true in the Senate, which is not subject to gerrymandering. And that's why Democrats have a better chance of holding on to the Senate in in November. And and that means preventing any of these House Republican proposals from being sent to the president. And of course, even if the Republicans do get a one or two seat advantage in the Senate, None of this is ever going to be signed into law while Biden is president. But but a Republican-controlled House would still have what is called oversight and investigative authority over the administration. In their commitment to America, did they talk about their plans for impeaching uh, Joe Biden? Well, or? Not, not in so many words. But uh, and I, yeah, curiously, I don't think there was even a mention of Hunter Biden, who is kind of the, you know, Um, poster boy for investigations to come. Um, But there is discussion of corruption. I I don't think they want to personalize in this sort of document all anti-Biden hearings all the time agenda, but we can fully expect that. Going back to the original 1994 Newt Gingrich contract with America, you say the goal of that was to win over Ross Perot voters, independence. This document does not seem to be slated to aim to win over independence. No. And, you know, um, I guess in fairness to the Republican Party, they don't have a lot to work with. You you can't really sell the Dobbs decision um, to a traditional independent voter. 
the anxiety about inflation is very real, and I think it will be a, a big issue for voters. But again, there aren't any specific plans there beyond more tax cuts. So, yeah, I think it's it's dressed up to look as though it's a responsible exercise in bringing the country together and arriving at a governing agenda that will move everyone forward. Uh, but in reality, and you saw this in the Mangala event, you mentioned Marjorie Taylor Greene was there, Jim Jordan was there. The Republican Party is, you know, you can't find a Republican moderate. And uh, is there anything here about the 2024 election and the threats coming from Trump and, and his supporters? Uh, yes, the Commitment to America document says that the Democrats have sought to undermine the constitutional principle of one person, one vote. That is a claim that is obviously bullshit. Uh, the, the Republicans have been suppressing and gerrymandering the vote nonstop since uh, 2010 and certainly since the disastrous 2013 <clears throat> Shelby versus Holder ruling, you know, basically got rid of the preclearance provisions of the Voting Rights Act. So, yeah, it is not the Democrats who are undermining that pr principle at all. It is not the Democrats who are, you know, who sought to mount a coup in Washington to overturn the results of a free and fair election. This is gaslighting. Perhaps we should note that is the other thing that the Republicans do really well. I covered for the nation last night the J.D. Vance, Timothy Ryan debate in Ohio. You know, I will say like Vance has become very adept at mimicking Trump and basically raising all these culture war scare points about how, you know, people from the from the southern border are pillaging and killing people with fentanyl and all the rest of it. And the minute Ryan would say, well, that's an unfounded, bigoted claim, <clears throat> Vance would just get indignant and say, how dare you call me a racist? It is like a perfect, you know, two-step. I do think it's it's working, unfortunately. What's important to remember in any midterm cycle is it's desperately hard to get voter turnout up. The people who do vote are tend to be wedded to the base of both major parties. Again, the model that worked for the 1994 contract with America just doesn't apply this time out because there are no moderate Republicans and because the base of the Republic, the Republican Party has moved so incredibly far to the right, even from the Gingrich era. Newt Gingrich dared not dream <laughs> that this would be the Republican Party 30 years later. Chris Lehman, his piece on the House Republicans' commitment to America is titled Trump Toadies Control the Republican Party. Read it at thenation.com. Chris, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. Always a pleasure. The Trump years are not the only time American democracy has been threatened. The World War I years, when Woodrow Wilson was president, a Democrat, they were another. That's what Adam Hochschild argues. He's an award-winning author. We've often talked about his books here. They include the classic King Leopold's Ghost. It's about colonialism in the Congo. Spain in Our Hearts, about the Spanish Civil War. And Bury the Chains, about how a small group of people started the movement that ended slavery in the British Empire. We reached him today at home in Berkeley. Adam Hochschild, welcome back. Good to be with you, John. 
Well, your book is titled American Midnight. For a lot of Americans, that phrase would seem to refer to the Trump years, particularly January 6th. So let's compare and contrast the darkness of the Trump years with the period you deal with, the World War I era, the presidency of Woodrow Wilson. Of course, let's acknowledge at the outset that Wilson did not try to overturn a presidential election. He did not call for an armed mob to attack the Capitol. He won the election both times he ran 1912 to 1916. So it was not that kind of a threat to democracy. But you say Wilson went a lot farther than Trump in his treatment of opponents, his opponents on the left. We remember that Trump supporters chanted at those rallies in 2016, lock her up, referring, of course, to Hillary. What did Wilson do about his opponents? Well, he actually did lock them up on quite a large scale. Between 1917 and 1921, more than 450 Americans were imprisoned by the federal government for a year or more, and a much larger number for shorter periods, and an at least equal number were imprisoned by state governments for a year or more, and larger numbers for shorter periods, solely for things they wrote or said. What set the pattern for this and states passed copycat laws was the Espionage Act, which uh, Wilson pushed through weeks after the United States entered the First World War. And which Let me just I interrupt and say the Espionage Act rings a bell. Haven't I heard about that in the news in the last month or two? You certainly have, because uh, Donald Trump may get in trouble under it because of those classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. The Espionage Act is still there. It's been considerably amended. But at the time, in 1917, for the next few years, it was extremely stringent, basically allowed the government to put people in jail for things that they said or wrote that were deemed to be unpatriotic at this time that America was at war. And Wilson locked up a number of his opponents the most prominent of whom was Eugene Debs, the uh, at that time four-time socialist candidate for president, who'd won 6% of the popular vote in 1912, and who was sent to jail for a very eloquent speech he gave saying that the U.S. Uh, should think twice about entering the First World War. And he was still in jail in November 1920 when he won more than 900,000 votes for president as a convict. <laughs> So locking up uh, Debs in 1919 would be sort of like, what, locking up Bernie Sanders today. Is that a reasonable parallel? That's right. I think it is a reasonable parallel. And what exactly was the crime, the act that counted as a violation of the Espionage Act? It was a speech that Debs gave in a park in Canton, Ohio, which said that the people have never had a say in declaring war. They declare war and they send you to war. And Debs had just come from visiting uh, three conscientious objectors who were in the county jail uh, right across from this park. And he spoke very eloquently uh, of them. And he was immediately put on trial. The federal judge in his trial was a former law partner of the Secretary of War. So there was very little <laughs> doubt about which way this verdict was going to go. And it was at that trial that Debs made his very eloquent uh, speech, which ends, you know, while there is a working class 
I am of it. While there is a man in prison, I am not free. And he was sentenced to 10 years. And uh, he served more than three of them. And then finally, by that time, the Red Scare had relented. Warren Harding was president. And Harding released him from jail, uh, invited him to visit in Washington on his way home from prison. And as he came out of the White House after that visit, Deb said to reporters, I've run for the White House five times, but this is the first time I've ever gotten here. <laughs> you know, Warren Harding, we are taught that uh, Warren Harding was one of our worst presidents. But what was it he said about Debs? You quote an amazing line in your book that I'd never seen before. He said, off the record, Debs was right about the war. We never should have gotten involved in it. And that was something that by 1920 or 21, a lot of people all over the world had come to, to, to feel because, of course, the First World War started first in Europe in 1914, then in, in the U.S. we joined in 1917 with an enormous burst of patriotism and everybody on both sides was convinced they were fighting for national survival and noble goals and to make the world safe for democracy and so forth. But by the time it was over, they realized the war was a catastrophe that had remade the world for the worse in every conceivable way. So we've said that Wilson exceeded Donald Trump by jailing hundreds of his opponents, including the presidential candidate of the Socialist Party, for things they said or wrote. And what about newspapers or magazines that criticized Wilson? During this time, starting with the Espionage Act, which went into effect weeks after the U.S. declared war in uh, April 1917, Roughly 75 newspapers and magazines were forced out of business because the Espionage Act gave the Postmaster General, who was a truly terrible man, Albert Burleson of Texas, the power to declare a publication unmailable. And at that time, you know, daily newspapers, the mainstream daily press, you know, was sold on street corners and distributed by newspaper carriers. They were not affected by this, but for weeklies, monthlies, journals of opinion, and most of the country's foreign language press, it had to go through the mail. There was no other means of transmission. And, you know, Burleson, in addition to forcing 75 publications to close, banned hundreds of specific, specific issues uh, of additional ones. Trump campaigned on an anti-immigrant platform promising to keep out immigrants from Mexico and to deny admission to the United States of Muslim uh, immigrants. How did Wilson compare with that? Well, when you roll back the clock a century, you see in this country, uh, there has always been really in the United States, a struggle going on between people whose ancestors got here a bit earlier and people who are coming later. And today it's you know, between people whose ancestors got here, you know, two or three generations ago, and newcomers who are, of course, more likely to be from Latin America. Uh, back then, there was no immigration to speak of from Latin America, but there were an awful lot of new people arriving from Southern and Eastern Europe, primarily Jews, Poles, and Italians. And the people who'd been here for a couple of generations were almost entirely of Anglo-Saxon stock, like Wilson himself. 
And in their eyes, Jews, Poles, and Italians had not yet, so to speak, become white. So all of their anti-immigration fervor was concentrated on these newcomers from Southern and Eastern Europe. And it culminated in 1924 with the immigration bill that was passed then that essentially slammed the door on all new immigrants, uh, reduced the, the inflow to tiny numbers. And that's what kept Holocaust refugees out of the United States. Deportation of undesirable immigrants had become a political issue in the 1920 election. What was the debate among the Democrats and the Republicans over deportation? Well, the interesting thing is that right up to the very last minute to the nominating conventions, the leading Republican candidate, General Leonard Wood, a big blood and thunder general, and the leading Democratic candidate, A. Mitchell Palmer, who was Wilson's attorney general, were trying to outdo each other in their promises to deport troublemakers from the U.S. Because, you know, even though it was Palmer's Justice Department that was arresting people literally by the thousands, he was looking for people to deport, that is, you know, troublemakers, radicals of all kinds, who had not yet become American citizens. That's what gave the government the power to deport them. But, but his crusade fell flat. And I think in a way it denied both of them the nomination, Palmer as a Democrat and Wood as a Republican. What happened was this, Palmer so much believed his own alarmist warnings that he was predicting as he was running for president in early 1920, all through that spring, that on May Day of 1920, the International Workers' Holiday, there would be a nationwide communist uprising. Did all that around, happen? No way. <laughs> all around the country, everybody prepared for it. New York City, they called in all three shifts of the police force. One <laughs> shift was on the streets. The other two were waiting in station houses. Everywhere the National Guard was put on alert, J.P. Morgan hired extra guards, they put extra security personnel at railway stations and ferry terminals, and the whole country was paused, you know, headline after headline for this uprising, and absolutely nothing happened. And that kind of took the steam out of Palmer's presidential campaign, and I, oddly enough, it spilled over to the Republican side, and instead of electing General Wood, which everybody thought was going to happen. They selected Warren Harding as the uh, presidential candidate for the Republicans, who ran famously on the platform of return to normalcy. Let's go back to Wilson for a minute here. You know, when I went to high school, I was taught that Wilson was a progressive, a reformer, that he wanted to make the world safe for democracy, that he wanted a war to end all wars. And that sounded great to me. And I wrote high papers in high school, I can remember saying, you know, he's one of our greatest presidents for this reason. Is Was this completely false? Well, you know, the funny thing about Wilson is I think he was a tremendously paradoxical, complicated man. You can't quite hate him as an all-out demagogue. There was an idealistic side to him. He was a moderate progressive when he was elected to office and in favor of you know, regulating business a little more, child labor laws, progressive income tax, things like that. But you know, he, there was one way in which he was a tremendous idealist. He had this idea for the League of Nations. The longer the US was in the war, the more 
having a peace settlement with the League of Nations at the center of it was what he felt uh, we should be pushing for. And in actual fact, I don't think his plan for the League of Nations would have been any more effective at stopping conflict than the UN has been since 1945. But you still can't deny that it's better for countries to sit down around a table and talk than to fight. And in a way, this aspect of his character almost literally killed him because when he was in very ill health, he set off on a long speaking tour around the United States in the summer of 1919, pushing for the U.S. to sign the Versailles Treaty with the League of Nations in it. He was in bad health. Speaking in those days meant shouting, because if you were reaching 10,000 people in an auditorium or stadium or something, there were no public address systems then. And it was during that trip that he suffered the first of two almost fatal strokes. Uh, the second came a week later when he was back at the White House that really knocked him out of commission for most of the last year and a half of his presidency. So that was his idealistic side, impractical, but in some ways admirable. At the same time, he presided over the greatest assault on civil liberties in the United States since the South rolled back Reconstruction after the Civil War. There's one other aspect of this in your book that we need to underline here, the idea of making the world safe for democracy. What did this mean in practice for Wilson's foreign policy, say in the Philippines or in Haiti? It meant nothing in practice because what he had in mind in saying that was basically, let's break up the old Austro-Hungarian empire, where in fact there were a lot of ethnic groups, uh, many of whose members wanted autonomy or independence. Let's carve out Poland from uh, Austria-Hungary, Russia, and, and, and Germany. But democracy certainly did not apply to American colonies uh, like the Philippines or to British colonies like Ireland at the time, Egypt, India, and war opponents like uh, Robert La Follette, senator from Wisconsin, said, hey, if we're fighting to make the world safe for democracy, why not self-determination for Ireland, for Egypt, for India? You uh, have a new piece at thenation.com originally a Tom Dispatch, it's titled What You Don't Have and Why. And you open with a story not about Woodrow Wilson or, or Gene Debs, but about you in Denmark recently. Yeah, what happened was this. Uh, my wife and I were visiting Denmark. I had an infection that I knew would require an antibiotic. I went to the hospital the doctor took a look at my hand where the infection was, and he said, yes, you do need an antibiotic. Without getting out of his chair, he turned around, opened a cabinet behind him, gave me a bottle of pills, said, uh, take one of the, take two of these every day for 10 days and you'll be okay. And then we chatted for a moment. And then I said, uh, thank you very much. Uh, I'm going to leave now. And where do I go to pay? And he said, we have no facilities for that. <laughs> and that phrase just has echoed in my mind every time all of us living in this country, even if we're lucky enough to have good medical insurance, you know, all the back and forth with people in doctor's offices and insurance companies, is this covered, is that covered, and so forth. And the key thing is alone, 
uh, among the highly industrialized nations, we don't have comprehensive universal health care for everybody. And we should. And actually, in that article, I cite the case of Costa Rica, where they have a per capita income one sixth of that of the United States. And Costa Ricans live on the average two years longer than we do, longer life wow. expectancy. Wow. Because they've got a good national health care system. Now, why don't we have a good national health care system? I think it has to do with the fact that in countries that do, it was often either installed by the Socialist Party in that country, such as the Labour Party in Britain, which you know set up their National Health Service after World War II, or it was installed because more mainstream parties were trying to steal a march on the socialists, and, and that's what happened in Germany, in fact, and get some system like this into place so that the socialists couldn't do it if they came to power and claim credit for it. But... One of the things that happened in this 1917 to 21 period is that the Socialist Party was ruthlessly crushed in this country. Now, they never would have been as strong a force as they've been in many European countries, but they still were a real power in American politics. 6% of the presidential vote in 1912, more than a thousand elected socialist officials around the country, members of state legislatures, city councils, and so forth. And when this repression happened, starting in 1917, uh, socialists of all kinds were among the prime targets, not just Debs, but many other party officials as well. There were enough of them behind bars that had they all been in the same uh, prison, they could have had a nice little party convention there. <laughs> and the, the period left that party crushed. And, you know, these were the sorts of people who at that time talked about doing things like having a national health care system, having old age pensions, which finally came into effect with Social Security, but not to 25 years later. Adam Hochschild, his new book is American Midnight, The Great War, A Violent Peace in Democracy's Forgotten Crisis. And he wrote a related piece about the American socialism that might have been for the nation. You can read it at thenation.com. Adam, thanks for talking with us today and thanks for this book. Well, it's always a pleasure, John. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. And subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.